Dirty Talk. Plain Talk. Unrivaled Talk. Mike Graham. The only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. See it. Hear it. Think it. Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. On a very auspicious day for the Republic, we've got record figures again, so thanks to all of you for listening, thanks to all of you for telling your friends about us, thanks to all of you from the BBC who have come over, sick of the wokery over there, uh, to come to the land of common sense, the place where the truth is spoken every single day, every single minute of every single hour of every single show right here on Talk TV. This is uh, a great day to be alive, it's a great day to be talking about all the things that are affecting us this morning, and I have to tell you, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Not only are we going to talk about the near catastrophic car chase that didn't happen in America, uh, we're going to replace the word near for not catastrophic because obviously it wasn't. Uh, We'll find out what really happened. We'll talk to Will Gettys, a man who knows a thing or two about celebrity chasing and celebrity protection as well, of course, because that's the business that he is in. Also, coming up, we're going to be speaking, of course, to Ben Habib, former MEP, a man who knows a thing or two about Brexit, and of course, a man who knows a thing or two about Sir Keir Starmer, who has now pledged that if he wins the next election and he becomes the Prime Minister of this great nation of ours, he will go back to the EU and renegotiate the deal. He says absolutely no chance, of course, of going back into the EU because he says there's no case for it. But whenever you hear a politician saying there's no case for it, it's a bit like hearing from the owners of a football club when they say uh, we have full confidence in the manager shortly before they fire him. So we'll be talking about that. Also, migration statistics. It turns out that uh, Rishi Sunak has backtracked on the Tory pledge to get net migration below 250,000. Why? Because they don't know how to do it. We're going to get some figures next week, which are going to show about a million more people have come to the country in 2022. Not illegally, not on small boats, but on visas and on schemes to bring people here along with their families uh, to overpopulate this island. That's very, very important, that story. Also, 200 of the most dangerous Albanian criminals in this country are being deported. So that's good news. Uh, But also, we've got some more good news for you. Rod Little is joining us. He's going to be here, as he is every single Thursday, to give us his uh, slightly uh, all right take on the world. got his column in the sun today as well also as if that wasn't enough they're announcing new knife crime statistics this very morning we're currently looking at them and we'll be bringing you what they tell you uh, inside the next half an hour basically i suspect what we're going to find is that knife crime numbers are massively up and nobody really knows what to do about that either don't forget ben clapworthy joins us too from the times he's going to talk about self-driving cars and the moral panic that they will cause i mean for heaven's sake can you imagine self-driving cars who needs them who wants them i certainly don't 0344 499 1000 is the number we want to hear from you of course as well because you make this show what it is the biggest show uh, on talk tv of course and talk radio and of course we are here for the next three hours let's get it on As I said, may I offer my condolences to the wokists over at the BBC. It's time to shut them all down, isn't it? Uh, people are leaving in droves, coming here, going to Virgin, going to Talk Sport, uh, and our sister stations here in uh, news broadcasting. It's absolutely fabulous. But let us talk, first of all, to Ben Habib, former MEP, uh, of course, because uh, we need to talk, Ben, about a certain Labour leader uh, who's making some very unusual noises about the European Union. Good morning. Good morning, Mike. What do you make of it? I mean, I don't trust uh, Sir Keir Starmer as far as I can throw him. When he, says, when he starts saying things like we need to renegotiate the Brexit deal, but there is no case for going back into the European Union, I do worry that when he finds a case for going back into the European Union, <laughs> he will present it to us. 
Well, this is a man who campaigned rigorously for a second referendum, trying to overturn the 2016 vote before we eventually notionally left the European in 2020. So I don't trust him one jot when he says that he doesn't wish to go back to the EU. And in fact, if you look at the public pronunciations by Starmer and lots of other leading um, shadow cabinet ministers over the last few months, they've all talked about the need for closer alignment with the EU, for building bridges with the EU, for undoing Brexit in effect, in all but name. Mm. I mean, we never really got Brexit, which is part of the problem. I'd like to come to that in a moment. Yes. But there's no doubt whatsoever that the Labour Party will completely undo whatever form of Brexit we have at the moment. And if you take together his pledge to renegotiate the deal with also his declaration that he wants to give EU citizens living in the UK a vote in the general election, in a general election, that would effectively tip the balance at a referendum in favour of going back into the EU. So when you take those two things together, that is the direction of travel. Mm. But, uh, but of course, you know, Mike, we wouldn't be here if the deal that Boris Johnson had done had genuinely taken the United Kingdom out of the EU. The reason we're, we're still being pulled gravitationally, inexorably back towards the EU is because the deal that Boris did didn't really get us out. Right. You know, we've got part of the United Kingdom, Northern Ireland, which is subject to the EU law, laws and regulations. And then we've got the rest of the United Kingdom, Great Britain, in effect, which is aligned with the EU. And Rishi Sunak, as we know very well, um, hasn't got the courage to stand up to the EU. He's turned his back on ditching those 4,800 EU regulations, which Parliament never approved in the first place, which were made with EU interests in mind. He's ditched that pledge to get rid of them. So we've, we've been oscillating in and around and close to the EU ever since we notionally left in mm. 2020. So it's not that difficult for Starmer if he gets a reasonable majority, and particularly if he brings in his electoral so-called reforms to give the vote to, the, to EU citizens. Mm. Not that difficult for him to take us straight back in. And that is the direction of travel. And knowing Absolutely him as Mike, that is it. knowing yeah. him as we do, you know, he likes to have these little back channels, doesn't he? Like the one um, that he had with Sue Gray while she was in Downing Street, while she was investigating yeah. the Prime Minister, talking to her about the whole business of, uh, you know, her joining the Labour Party. He says they didn't talk about it. I'm not sure I believe him. But you can bet your bottom dollar that Labour will currently be speaking to the EU and various apparatchiks oh. over there about how we can make this happen, right? Of course. I mean, they were briefing against the United Kingdom's interests throughout the period when we were negotiating to get out. I mean, it was, to be fair to Boris Johnson, it was a very difficult task he had because the well that he inherited from Theresa May had been so badly poisoned, both by Theresa May, but also the opposition. The Labour lot, including Sadiq Khan, were popping back and forth to Brussels, colluding with the EU against British national interests. I mean, it's extraordinary. You can't imagine someone in public office actually colluding with a counterparty whose interests during that period when we were negotiating with them were, you know, diametrically opposed to our interests. We were trying to do a deal where we were trying to promote our interests. But we had people in our government 
who were working against that interest. I mean, you can't believe it, can you? It's, it's sort of beggar's belief, but that's exactly what happened. Well, I mean, in and some, in in some that circumstances, that could, that could be described as treasonous, couldn't it? Well, I... <laughs> I mean, I know I that's, a, that's use, a hard word, yeah. but I'm using it. Yeah, yeah, but you're, I mean, you're right. It's, a, it's you know, it, it, it absolutely exemplifies the point. You know, in order to exemplify the point, using a word like that does reveal what they've been up to. Yeah. They've well, been I mean, working against you know, British wor- national interest. Working against British national interest, um, against the will of the people who voted to do something which they don't want to do, uh, and to actively try to, uh, to disrupt yeah. and, and damage any attempt to do what the British public voted for and anything the government absolutely. was attempting to do on their behalf. I, I'd say treason uh, is absolutely right. Yeah. And, you know, there are 47 million registered voters, roughly, for a general election at the moment. If he gives every EU member citizen that got settled or pre-settled status. There are six and a half million EU citizens that mm. would be added to our electoral register. Yeah. That would absolutely swing the vote in favour of going back into the EU. And then it's a hop and a skip before we're back in yeah. on much worse terms than we had before. Yeah, you know? <laughs> so it's going to be... It's a, it's a terrible situation. It really is. But, I mean, do you not have some sympathy for Boris Johnson and the way that he did what he did? Because we, I remember 2019, and it was a dreadful stalemate situation. I remember going down to the uh, College Green to the Tent of Common Sense every single day, even on a Saturday one day, if you remember that Saturday, yeah. uh, when we all were told that we were going to have a special session in Parliament to, 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 to dislodge the, uh, the roadblocks. And, of course, Oliver Letwin saw to it that those roadblocks remained, and the Saturday session was just like all the other sessions complete stalemate and i remember sitting there thinking we're going to be here forever it's literally like we're stuck in some kind of horrible recurring nightmare where you wake up every morning and you're still exactly in the same spot that you were when you went to sleep and of course he then managed to get it done now i take your point that it wasn't done properly but i blame the civil service i blame um people in sort of you know other areas of, of the government who are more like remainers than they are like leavers and I think people have conspired to stop it from happening rather than it not being done properly. I mean, the biggest, the biggest um, conspirator against Brexit was Theresa May because yeah. the deal that she wished to do and uh, w- w- was one that effectively allowed the EU and, and the Republic of Ireland to weaponise the Northern Irish border issue. Mm. That gave them the grappling hook, if you like, of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which kept the United Kingdom really closely tethered to the EU. You know, the Northern Ireland Protocol is such a dull and boring word. Every time I mention it, I fear that people listening to me are going to have their eyes glazed over. But it, it's not really a Northern Irish issue. Of course, it's Northern Ireland that's the subject of, of, of the protocol. But it is an attack on the entire United Kingdom's desire to leave the EU. That's what the Northern Ireland Protocol was. And that's why I bang on about it, because it kept us close to them. And it was Theresa May that allowed... Uh, people like Varadkar and the EU to claim that simple customs checks on the island of Ireland would result in a breakdown in peace. In effect, she gave into threats of violence. And so when Boris Johnson take, took over as prime minister, he had a poisoned well and he had a very difficult task. I completely uh, you know, agree with you, Mike. Yeah. You've got to have sympathy for Boris there. But then Boris made a really, he made two fundamental errors, perhaps one of which he couldn't fix. But the first fundamental error was returning to Parliament 136 Remain voting MPs yes. so that the 80-seat majority he had actually wouldn't support him in Brexit because there were 136 who could mm. vote against him. So he had a broken parliamentary party from the beginning. And then the other thing that he did, and it's symptomatic, I think, of Boris, 
is that immediately on winning that historic majority, he went on holiday for three weeks. And that was the time, with the benefit of the majority, to have put right the bad narratives that Theresa May had allowed to get grip of the UK. To go back to the EU and say, well, I know we agreed that withdrawal agreement before the election, but actually I've got an 80-seat majority now. The deal's a lousy deal. You either give us a better deal or we're leaving without a uh, we're, we're leaving mm. without a deal. Yeah, and that was. I mean, I would definitely have favoured that. That, that was the chance yeah. to do it, and that would have been better. But again, he was fighting against the blob. He was fighting against the media. He was fighting against a massive sort of you know woke wokeocracy, if you want. I've just invented a new word yeah. uh, of people who just <laughs> wanted to make sure that whatever happened, that didn't happen. Oh, the hurdle is huge, but then you know the optics of going on holiday immediately after winning the election that didn't sit well with me yeah you know he had a big job on his hands there was a massive constitutional issue that needed still to be resolved 40-year arrangement with the eu Mm. a divorce had to take place and he went on holiday and to me that's that signaled all the wrong things and so i I can't forgive him for not using that Mm. six-week window yeah to really drive home a proper deal for the United Kingdom. No, I take your point, absolutely. We'll put that out to the audience as well, because they may have a view on it. But stay with us, Ben, if you would. Ben Habib, can't forgive Boris Johnson for not making the deal work. I have a little bit more sympathy with Boris. What do you think? 0344 499 1000. And will Keir Starmer uh, be someone you can trust not to take us back into the EU? I don't think so. Coming up, though, we're going to talk about migration, because Rishi Sunak has now said they won't be able to keep the Tory pledge to get net migration below 250,000. And that, my friends, I'm afraid, uh, is a disaster. It's a talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelength, talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. We're talking to Ben Habib, former MEP, of course, about the whole business of Keir Starmer in the EU and what he wants to do and who he wants to have voting uh, for what it is that he wants to do if he is Prime Minister. But right now, we're going to take a little side track away uh, from Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak. I'm going to go uh, right now to Oliver whitfield Mirchich, uh, who's outside Southwark Crown Court. He's, going to got, he's got a load of statistics for us. The whole knife crime statistics have come out. 19,292 knife offences in 2022. Rural knife crime up 56% since 2012. A 116% increase in suspended sentences since 2012. Uh, knife crime still a massive problem in all the big cities as well. But I think this is where we're going to uh, focus this morning. Oliver, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Yes, good morning, Mike. This latest statistics that have just been released show quite a varied picture of what happens across the country. That headline figure across the nation of more than 19,000 knife crimes is actually slightly down on that high that we had since 2019, a slight downward trend from the year before in 2021. The capital in London remains the knife crime capital as well, followed by the Greater Manchester area Mm. and then the West Midlands. But probably one of the most interesting trends that we are seeing is that more rural areas are now recording their highest ever crime numbers relating to knife crime since more than a decade. We're Mm. looking at places such as West Yorkshire, such as Cambridgeshire. They have seen increases above 50% when it comes to Cambridgeshire, that jump is 44%. That would be particularly worrying for people that live in more countryside, bucolic areas who might have thought previously that knife crime was centred around big city areas. Now it looks like that trend of knives being used is coming more into 
the countryside. All at the same time, though, we're also seeing this trend that people are being given more suspended sentences. That's where you're taken before a judge, but the judge releases you on the proviso that you do not commit another offence. That has jumped up to an all-time high since 2016. At the same time, the number of people who are immediately being sent to prison is falling, although it's not the lowest on record. And that is seemingly at odds with the noises that we hear from government, from the Home Secretary, that this is an administration that is going to be tough on knife crime and the causes of knife crime. We've heard previously from Suella Bravman that she's going to boost the powers of police to give them more powers of stop and search, all in a bid to try and stop this absolute scourge of knife crime in the country. Remember, there is legislation currently being put forward to Parliament to ban the so-called zombie knives, those huge machetes, yes. which at the moment are legal. The government's saying that they do want to stop that. But I think the statistics that we can see there today quite worrying for those mm. people living in those more rural areas. Yes, absolutely right. Oliver, thanks very much indeed. We'll come back to you uh, inside the next hour to get some more detail to fill in those um, uh, those, those those actual headlines because it is an extraordinary um, statistic that 56% uh, is the number of uh, crimes. Rural knife crime has increased since 2012. Places like Cambridgeshire, places like West Yorkshire, uh, the home counties, places where there are not urban centres, where there is not urban sprawl, where there are not hordes of criminal gangs, but where there are just ordinary people going about their daily lives, schoolboys going to school with knives. That's the problem we've got. Let's go back to Ben Habib, uh, who we've been talking to this morning. Ben, just a quick one on the knife crime. I mean, we all sort of know anecdotally that uh, that knife knives are now being used far more widely and being carried far more widely outside cities. That's a worrying uh, trend, isn't it? It is. I mean, you know, you, you continually get this impression that the country is spiralling out of control. Yeah. Um, crime is up, not just knife crime, but all forms of crime is up. Um, we've also got Ill illegal immigration up. We've got prisons, you know, brimming um, with prisoners. We've got a judiciary which isn't putting people away, uh, uh, you know, in the numbers that it needs to mm. be. Only, a, I think, 2% of serious crime actually results in a conviction. You know, so we've got, we've got really serious issues. Um, which we need to address. And that's, of course, alongside all the economic problems the country faces and the public sector in a complete sort of mess. Um, it just looks to me like we are out of control at the moment. We really are. And you talk about illegal immigration. And as we speak, there will be hundreds of people arriving on our shores uh, this morning. The weather's rather nice. It's a rather calm day, no doubt, on the sea. But the big story for me, which has emerged, and you and I have spoken about it in the last month, is this legal migration racket which seems to be going on. We're going to get yeah. figures next week, which we think could be as high as a million people coming here in 2022. Uh, Rishi yeah. Sunak has now backtracked on the Tory pledge to get that net migration figure below 250,000. So it's looking like it could be as much as four times that figure. And these are people that we're inviting in. Well, remember, David Cameron promised he would get uh, migration down to the tens of yes, thousands. That's where he that. was. And this is a country which is failing to build enough houses for the population that's already here. Mm. Another million people net, that's net, by the way, Mike, another million people net this year means we need another 200,000 houses. That is huge. You know, that is one year supply just for the people who've come in in the last year. Yeah. The country just can't cope. And that makes no account, of course, of the impact to the social fabric of the country. I know mm. people don't really want to talk about that, but we're changing well, we dramatically. Do. 
Well, yeah, well, we're changing. You know, the nature of the country culturally is changing dramatically as a result of these, the, the, you know, the change in the mix of the, uh, of the population. Yeah. And we've got to be very careful. Look, I've got nothing. I'm not xenophobic. I'm half Pakistani. I, I champion all the qualities of different cultures, all the good different qualities. But what we tend to practice in this country is a form of multiculturalism where people retire into their silos and don't integrate, don't come forward in an open uh, manner, uh, absorbing the best of British and allowing what is the best of them to be absorbed by the United yeah. Kingdom. You know, we, we tend to be breaking, breaking the country into these little uh, units of disharmony, if you like. Yeah. And it's a re- again, it's another sort of symptom of the country looking like it's out of control. Yeah, so I mean, I'm, it, I'm like you, Ben. I mean, yeah. I, was, I was born and raised in London. Multiculturalism has always been something that London has been famous for. But we've now reached a point where London is uh, 38% white. And the, and the country is 85% white. So there's something slightly wrong with the balance of that. And I'm not saying that for some reason um, that, that, that this is something we can do anything about because obviously people tend to, if they do emigrate to yeah. another country, they tend to work in the cities. That's where the work tends to be. But the cities of this country are more, shall we say, mixed culturally than the rest of the country is. And um, we've got to be very careful. You know, one of the reasons the United Kingdom is a great country, and I actually believe it's the greatest country on earth, um, for a multitude of reasons. But one of the reasons it's a great country is because of our values. And if our values get denuded and diluted and ignored and set aside because other values have been imported, which haven't mm. integrated with our values, which have actually just replaced them, we've got to be very, very careful because that will be the beginning of the end of this wonderful country mm. that we are. Ultimately, that's what it's about. You know, we're not building enough houses. Maybe one day we'll get a grip of that. Debt's out of control, maybe one day we'll get a grip of that. Taxation, out of control, maybe one day we'll get a grip of it. But once our values have gone, once we cease to hold the very values that created this great country in the first place, we are lost. Yeah. And we've got to be very, very careful. Yeah, I could not agree more. Ben, well said. Thank you very much indeed. Ben Habib, former MEP there, uh, talking about the wokeocracy. I'm liking this word a lot. The more I say it, the more I like it. Wokeocracy could ruin uh, what we have built in this country. People don't want it. People don't want a wokeocracy. Look what happened to Radio 4. Loads of people are leaving their uh, uh, listenerships in droves to come listen to us because, you know why? Because nobody wants wokery. Nobody's interested. It's boring. It's awful. It's dreadful. And it's not British, quite frankly. This is Talk TV. Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk. Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. See it. Hear it. Think it. Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Record numbers for us today. We're celebrating a big Rage R boost. Uh, I'm very happy to say that we've cleaned loads and loads of listeners from elsewhere, including the BBC, of course, where the wokists have just got to them to such an extent that they've given up. Wokeocracy is my new word. We're going to attack it with a vengeance. We're going to attack it with every sinew of our being, and we're going to make sure that the wokists don't win, because we can't let that happen. Uh, we're living in a world now uh, where wokery has taken over, and we're fighting back, uh, as I say, uh, every single second of every single minute of every single show on Talk TV. 0344-499-1000 is the number uh, from uh, somebody who doesn't give a I don't believe a word of this nonsense. I think Harry lost his case for police protection in the UK and dreamt this up so our courts would change their minds. He has enough money, pay for his own private guards. Well, he wants to pay, but the trouble is he doesn't want to just pay for private guards. He wants to pay the police in this country uh, to work 
privately for him. Well, I'm sorry, we don't live in feudal Britain. You don't get to buy the police off just because uh, you used to be Prince Harry of Herbertshire. You've given it all up. You've gone to live in America. Uh, Take it uh, like a man. Take it as you should take it. And if you want private security, pay for it. That's what you do in America, and that's what you should do here. Meanwhile, uh, the near-catastrophic incident that happened uh, appears to be not quite so near-catastrophic as everybody thought. What appears to be catastrophic is the PR disaster uh, that Harry and Meghan have brought upon themselves by pretending that they were being chased for two hours at high speed through the streets of New York like some kind of scene from Fast and Furious 23. You can't drive at 80 miles an hour through New York, and the only footage we've seen so far is of a yellow taxi, a stationary yellow taxi, uh, with Harry and Meghan in the back of it, uh, and a security guard in the front, and a taxi driver who said, actually, it wasn't that bad. What's going on? Absolutely unbelievable. More importantly, and much more importantly, we're going to talk about knife crime. Norman Brennan is here, former police officer, director of the Law & Order Foundation. Uh, We were told this morning, new figures have shown that 19,292 knife offences took place in 2022. Most disturbingly of all, I would say, rural knife crime is up 56% uh, since 2012. And there's a 116% increase in suspended sentences handed out since that time. We've still got massive numbers in Manchester, in London, in the West Midlands, uh, over a thousand in the last two, nearly 4,000 in the the Metropolitan Police area of London. Uh, What we can say is that young men in particular, not just in cities now, but all over the country, are carrying more and more knives. But fewer of them are being locked up for it. Norman, a very good morning to you. Yeah, good morning, Mike. Um, there's not much good news in these uh, figures, but I suppose you wouldn't be surprised to see that uh, the spread of knife crime is now sort of universally uh, across the country. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's not just a London or a major city problem now. There's really a, a village, town or city that has not been affected by knife crime mm. and um, by high numbers. Um, well, we, we, we look at these figures and I think that we've got to the stage now, Mike, where society expects to be a victim of knife crime or knife crime not to be effectively dealt with. Yeah. You give alarming figures and they are alarming. I, I've read it. The uh, sentencing uh, has gone down since 2012 to now from 38% to 30%. So we're clearly not dealing with knife crime in an effective way. And on top of the figures that you highlight, 37,000 knives and bladed articles were seized off of uh, suspects in the past three years. And when you think we rarely see police officers on the streets of now, the true figure is absolutely horrendous. Mm. And it will be so alarming that if the true figures were there, there would probably not be anybody in Britain that wouldn't say, why the hell isn't the government and the criminal justice system and the police doing their best, actually doing something effective about it? I mean, looking at some of the stats that I've got in front of me, offences resulting in immediate custody in 2022, 5,790. I mean, that presumably means immediate custody after an incident has happened. So it's a serious enough incident the police have had to arrest that person and put them in uh, custody. And often these uh, suspects have been caught uh, a number of times with um, a knife or a bladed article. Mm. The, the, the maximum sentence is four years. Right. Uh, rarely anybody gets more than a few months. Mm. There is no deterrent. And I've been in law and order, as you know, for 43 years. And I haven't seen a single political party that's got a grip with the causes and effects 
of knife crime. And the reason why you need to deal with the causes is because if you don't know the causes, you can't deal with it. The effects are only too uh, obvious to see. Many children are being stabbed. Many children are stabbing other children. Two years ago in London, we had the highest homicide, knife homicide rate, 27 on record. Mm. What are we doing? What's, what are we doing with these children? Because if they've got no hope, they've got no aim in life, mm. and they're carrying knives, they have no fear of stabbing someone else. They are involved in cross-border crime. They're, called, they're involved in knife crime. They're involved in robberies. And they see that as a lucrative living. And when they don't see any police officers on the streets, then they see very little deterrent. And where are these parents? There are children as young as 11, 12. Just the other day, there's an 11-year-old while on TikTok threatening police officers with a knife. Mm. And the police couldn't talk him out of dropping his knives. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. So rightly, they tasered him. Where was the outcry? Mm. Was the outcry against the youngsters that are carrying these knives, children that are carrying knives, or the police. Well, of course, it was the police that uh, somehow were outraged about. What do we need to do about this, Mike? Well, I'll tell you what we need to do. And I said this when I was a Serbian police officer 20 years ago. We need five years mandatory sentencing for those that carry knives on our streets without lawful authority or reasonable excuse. You're more likely to be stabbed to death three times more than shot to death. Yet carry a firearm it's a minimum of five years mandatory sentence. That just shows you the disparity. We need mass stop and search. It's clear from the 37,000 knives that police seized in three years when there's so few officers on the streets. We need a massive education program. We need parents and these youngsters to start taking responsibility. Mm. Carrying a knife and stabbing people, it's not the fault of the police or society. It is fault of those that carry the knives. And if parents can't control their children, well, should these children actually be in their parents' custody? Mm. That is a good question. We also need mentors. We need to give these youngsters some hope for the future because if this knife crime continues unabated and so out of control, it is an epidemic and it's a crisis. Normally we deal with epidemics and crises, but we don't. As I told you, in 43 years, knife crime has got worse and worse and worse. For when I joined the police service in 1978, Mike, to finish off with, yeah. I rarely ever saw a child carrying a knife. They did. Very few did. Murdering another child, almost unheard of. I've just given you the stats for London alone. Two years ago, the highest number on record. Children are killing children, and no one, the government, 
the criminal justice system and society as a whole really seem to be getting a grip on knife crime. It's a crime that most people think cannot be dealt with. Well, if it can't be dealt with now, what hope have we got for the next generation when they come along and think carrying knives and stabbing people and robbing people and using it for self-defence? is the norm because that's what it's like at the moment it is and there's a doubling uh, slightly more than doubling actually of the number of suspended sentences handed out as you mentioned earlier is that because there's no room to put these people in prison <laughs> absolutely now if somebody commits a crime mike whatever the crime and they've been given so many warnings and there's 12 um, alternative sentences to actually go into prison those that actually go to prison are sent to prison or a young offenders institute because the crime is so serious or their criminal behavior is so persistent that they need to be punished and society need to be protected well all i ever see and i'm sure you're the same we follow each other on twitter we follow the news every day is every day of the week there's a child or an adult predominantly a young man stabbed to death or in an intensive care bed in a mortuary and parents are planning funerals instead of futures. If I can see that, and you can see that, Mike, how the hell can the government and the criminal justice system that we look to to set laws and protect us by sentences not see it too? Mm. Or is it that they just haven't got a clue how to deal with it? They're trying to brush it under the carpet. Will you try and tell that to a parent bereft with their head in Mm. their hands, in a mortuary with their child six feet away saying, I hope that child, my child, is the last one that dies as a result mm. of knife crime. How many times have we heard that, Mike? Oh, I've I know. heard the same it's, it's, a heartbreak, 20- it's a heartbreaking story, and I've spoken to many parents who's, who's, whose children have been lost to this awful crime. And every parent, actually, I've got teenage boys, every parent who's got teenagers worries about it all the time. doesn't matter where they live in the country because you know that there's an opportunity and a chance that if something goes wrong uh, for a split second, if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, it's your kid that could get stabbed. Absolutely. If I was the government, I would bring in, as I said earlier on, immediately, you carry a knife, whether you're a child or an adult, male or female, on the streets of Britain without lawful authority or reasonable excuse. Five years mandatory sentencing. Unless there's exceptionally good reasons, Mm. you are kept in custody. I promise you this, Mike, is probably one of the most independent law and order uh, advisors in Britain. Knife crime within 24 months would not be unheard of, but I promise you this. Dozens of children, if not hundreds of children, would have been saved from being murdered, maimed Mm. and having their lives destroyed. And society may walk the streets in a much safer atmosphere. The trouble is, no one listens to me, no one listens to these parents, and all we're going to do, Mike, in a year's time is talk about the next set of stats. Mm. Stats are great, but the thing is, they're so high, even a drop shows that they dropped from epidemic proportions. It's out of control. We haven't broken the circle. And sadly, I've been discussing this for decades Mm. and it's got worse and worse. Yeah, shocking state of affairs. Well, let's try and do it this time around, Norman. We'll do our very level best to try and make the people who are in charge of this country listen to this stuff. Uh, Former police officer, director of the Law and Order Foundation, Norman Brennan, passionate about knife crime, passionate about making it stop, passionate about doing something to change um, the terrible spiral of death and despair Uh, which is now spreading not just into every city in this country, but also into every town. 
and into every uh, village, indeed. Uh, knife crime spreading into rural areas, an incredibly high number now. Uh, and you'll know it if you're a parent. And if you've got a story, we'd like to hear it. 0344 499 1000. Tonight on Jeremy Kyle Live, uh, there's a special investigation on knife crime and machetes uh, with a series of special guests. Talk TV, 7pm tonight. Don't miss it. Coming next, uh, we'll have more from uh, our reporter Oliver whitfield Mircic with these statistics. And also, we'll talk some more about some nasty Albanian people who are going to be sent home. Criminals. They are. This is Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Rod Little coming up at midday in his regular appearance with us here every single Thursday. You don't want to miss it. There'll be a podcast coming out a little bit later on as well. Uh, just go to where you get your podcast, download it, uh, subscribe to it, and you'll get an alert every single time uh, it comes out. Just before we speak to Emma Revel uh, from the Centre for Policy Studies, who are going to be releasing the new uh, net migration figures next week, the legal ones, that is, and we're going to talk to her about that, but also about the Albanian drug gangs who are being sent back to Albania. Let's go back down to Southern Crown Court. Oliver Whitfield Mircic is there uh, with us for Talk TV. He's got these knife statistics we've just been talking to Norman Brennan about. Uh, Oliver, you've had an opportunity to look some more into the sort of uh, the stories behind these figures. What have you found for us? Yeah, well, I think that key headline figure that we're seeing is that knife crime is now not just a preserve of big city areas such as London, which remains the knife crime capital of the United Kingdom. London's knife crime rate, or at least for those who's being sentenced, three times higher than the next highest place, which is the Greater Manchester area, and then the West Midlands. We're now seeing, though, that knife crime is spreading into more rural settings. West Yorkshire has seen a 54% increase since 2012. Thames Valley, a 44% increase. Places in Cambridgeshire, up 42%. Also further up north in Cleveland. Now, this will be incredibly worrying for people that live in more countryside and bucolic areas where they had thought that this was potentially more something that happens in these big city areas. Alongside that, we're also seeing that more people are being given suspended sentences, that's up at an all-time high since 2012, whilst at the same time, people who are being sent to immediate custody in prison is dropping. However, that number is not at an all-time low. Now, that is at odds with the government's pledges to be tough on knife crime, because you'd think if the government was going to be tough on knife crime, then judges would be even tougher on the people who are being sent down The government has made repeated assurances that it was going to give powers to the police officers so that they could do stop and search. New legislation is being tabled before Parliament to outlaw those so-called zombie knives, the huge machetes that people might have seen in those videos that occasionally pop up on social media. Knife crime now a scourge not only in the big urban centres right across Britain, but also in the countryside too. Absolutely right. And suspended sentences apparently being handed out, Oliver, because there simply isn't enough room in our jails. Yeah, well, the criminal justice system at the moment is facing a number of different pressures, a huge backlog in cases that all stemmed back from when we had the COVID-19 pandemic. But also, as more people are now being processed, there is that difficulty in trying to fit everybody into the prison system. It's a tough balancing act for the government because it costs a lot of money to house prisoners. But at the same time, when you've got knife crime rising in certain parts like this, 
something does need to be done. The overall picture is pretty much unchanged across the nation. A headline figure of around 19,000 people have been seen through the court systems across the UK for knife crime and offensive weapons. It's slightly down on the year of 2021 and about a 14% decrease in 2019, which was the highest figure since 2012. Absolutely. Uh, good to talk to you, Oliver. Thanks very much indeed. Oliver uh, Whitfield Mircic, Talk TV's reporter on those knife crime figures. And we can talk some more about the state of our prisons, of course, right now with Emma Revel, uh, who's from the Centre for Policy Studies. Emma, very good morning to you. Is Emma there? Emma's going to talk to us about the Albanian uh, drug uh, crime that's going on in this country because there's 200 of the most dangerous Albanian criminals who are going to be deported. They're serving time in prison currently uh, and they're now going to spend the rest of their time in prison in their home country of Albania. And looking at some figures that we've got in front of us here, the proportion of Albanians imprisoned in England and Wales has doubled in the past five years. In 2017, uh, it was only about 6 to 7% uh, of the prison population. Uh, and in 2021, it was as high as 15% of the prison population. Um, let's find out if we can get hold of Emma. Emma, hello. Hi, Mike. Hi, how are you doing? Um, I'm good, thanks. Um, we were just talking there about how many suspended sentences are being handed out because of uh, the fact that our prisons are now full. Um, presumably after we've got rid of 200 of these very old, dangerous Albanian criminals, there'll be a bit of space. Well, if people are being deported, that is one way that we can try and reduce the burden on the prison system is, is by deporting uh, foreign criminals, people who either no longer have a right to be here or who did, but you know have committed crimes and therefore uh, the government and the justice system say that they need to be sent to their home mm. country. Now, some of these people, I'm, under, I'm led to believe, have been paid to actually go home, to be deported, because apparently to deport people is quite a complicated matter. It can be quite expensive. Also, there's been a deal struck, I believe, with Albania uh, to make sure that they will be given some money to house these prisoners as well. So it's not a cheap uh, sort of solution, but at least it's a solution of sorts. Yeah, it's a particularly complex situation. You have obviously uh, legal uh, appeals that we see often when people are being deported and their home country often says, well, actually they've, they've left, they're not necessarily our problem. So it's important that the UK has these deals in place with these countries so that when we do need to deport foreign criminals, they are, you know, the, the home country does take them back and can put them in their prison system, perhaps. And one of the problems we've seen is that they get deported and then when they get released from prison in Albania, they come back on a small boat because obviously they don't want to come back um, legally because they can't come legally. But you're going to be talking to us probably next week, aren't you, with uh, these new figures that are going to come out. The Centre for Policy Studies will tell us, thanks to the Home Office, precisely how big the legal migration number is, the net migration number is, on May the 25th. Tell us a little bit about what you're expecting and, and how you're going to be able to break all that down. So at the minute, what we know already uh, from the Home Office figures is that 1.3 million people uh, was the sort of people who've come in to the country right. uh, in the last year. What we don't know uh, is the figures for the number of people who've left. And obviously that is will help us balance out our net migration figures. Um, we've used a couple of, of different models to forecast what that number might be. Um, and if you look at the, the previous peak um, of, of uh, people leaving the country, you get something in the region between 700,000 people and a million. Mm. Uh, it really does depend. So the previous record of people leaving the country was obviously um, in the early days of the pandemic. Lots of people left for a variety of reasons. Mm. That would put the net migration pig figure at about 710,000. 
Um, if we look at uh, figures uh, on the assumption they stay the same as last year, so the same as the 2021 figures, you get 835,000 would be the net migration. But if we see figures reverting to the average between 2010 and 2019, so the average in the decade before the pandemic, we get incredibly close to net migration mm. hitting uh, a million. Wow. And of the 1.3 million that are coming in, are they all people who have got visas to either work or to be students or are they those people plus some dependents? So uh, a large chunk of that is uh, Ukrainian refugees that we have taken in the last year. Or similarly, people from Afghanistan and British national overseas coming from Hong Kong, moving to the UK. They are a big part of the number, but the rest of it is made up of um, students coming to study in the UK at various levels, undergraduates, masters, uh, PhDs, all that sort of thing. Mm. Um, people coming to join existing family who already live here. Students as well can bring dependents. So if you're a master's student, we've seen a tenfold increase in the number of dependents coming with them uh, in just four years from 12,000 to just over 120,000. And obviously people with visas to come and work in the UK because they have an operable job. Indeed. And so it's kind of unclear, though, exactly who has the entitlement to bring how many members of, of their family with them and how sort of rigorous that system will be, because this has really shot a spotlight uh, on the immigration problem in this country, which up to now has been kind of focused on the small boats and the illegal people coming. But this is a far bigger number, isn't it? It is a far bigger number and it does put pressure, um, as all kinds of migration do, put pressure on, on infrastructure, things like housing, for example. Uh, at the minute, we have a target in this country to build 300,000 homes a year, a target that most years we do not meet. Um, that's based on on a much lower net migration figure. And actually, if, if you know we see the sort of figures that we're predicting for next week, we actually should be building something like 430,000 houses every year. We're not coming anywhere close to that. Mm. And as far as the way that the, the, the figures will be broken down, will you be able to get accurate numbers on each of the kind of categories, if you like, of people coming in, what they're actually coming in to do, which jobs they'll be getting? Uh, off the top of my head, I don't know about which jobs, but the Home Office certainly break it down into people who come here for a work visa and the dependents they bring with them. Same for students. So we will know the number of students who come and the number of dependents that are brought with them. Um, we will also get very accurate figures on, uh, as we have already, the number of uh, Ukrainian refugees, people coming from Hong Kong, mm. things like that. Yeah. And why is it that the numbers going out are so difficult to count? Because we've heard this in the past that, you know, the recording, I suppose, of people leaving isn't as good as it ought to be. Oh, I'm not sure off the top of my head, Mike, but I'll, I'll make sure I've got an answer for you next week. <laughs> OK, brilliant stuff. Emma, thanks very much indeed. Emma Revel uh, from the Centre for Policy Studies there on uh, the big day that's going to come on May the 25th next week, uh, just a week or so away, because we're going to be told, we're going to find out just how big this number of net migration is going to be. And it looks as though, at the very least, it's probably looking at the, the, the low end of around 700,000 people, which is massive, uh, at the high end, closer to a million, even more massive. And even more worrying, I would have thought. 0344 499 1000. Mark says, hi, Mike. Don't you think the Montecito moaners would be equally outraged if the media and paparazzi just totally ignored them? Yeah, can you imagine walking out of a building and nobody takes any pictures? I've seen that happen, actually. I've seen it happen on red carpets. I've seen people being ignored by the paps before. It really is quite amusing. I think that's the best medicine for these pair. I do believe that. Coming up, though, uh, we're going to find out about driverless cars. Ben Clatworthy is going to be here. Also, we're going to talk a little bit about the state of the water business in this country, which is absolutely dire. It's filthy, I tell you. Filthy. This is Talk TV. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. What? 
Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. We've got loads going on. Chris says this, I've, been, I've come up with a new word, uh, wokeocracy. I'm not quite sure whether you take the E off it and make it just W-O-K, that would be wokeocracy, I suppose. Uh, he says it's brainwashing, that's why it's used in schools and universities, to bring about the destruction of our country that Ben Habib fears. Chris in Ottershaw. Wokeocracy is what's going on in this country, and there, there are lots of things that happen, and you have to ask the question, well, why is that happening? Why did we not ask for that, or did we ask for that? Driverless cars, something that we didn't ask for, uh, are now sort of upon us, and I'm delighted to say that Ben Clapworthy has joined us, travel correspondent from The Times, uh, because believe it or not, he's been in one, or possibly more than one. Ben, very good morning to you. Good morning. Driverless cars, you know, I, it's one of those things that I don't, I mean, I like driving, right? I don't like being driven. Uh, if I'm going a long distance, when we had to, used to go and film uh, in a studio in West London, because it was quite a long way, rather than going in a taxi, I used to drive. Because mm-hmm. anything more than about a 20-minute cab ride for me, I'd, I'd, I'd rather be in charge of the car. So I don't really like the idea of being driven by sort of a, a nebulous sort of thing that sits yep. somewhere in the middle of the, 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 the machine and just drives you around. How does it work? Well, I've tried... Uh car the ford uh, mustang mach e which right. is there and it's their latest model um where you basically can go hands-free on the motorway mm. network in the uk it's been approved dft have given it the green light now this is sort of level two automation it goes up to level five which would be the fully driverless sit in the back watch right. football read right. a book we're not we're not there yet but where we are is actually in this sort of slightly strange Point. So you pull onto the motorway and you set the adaptive cruise control. Right. So you're doing that with your hands. I you mean, do I this. It's going to sound stupid, this, but I'm going to talk you. You have to talk me through all of it. So you you set it up. <clears> you say yes, I want it to go. Drive me at seventy miles an hour, please. Yeah. And you press go. And then when you're on the motorway, it'll say hands free area enabled. Right. And at that point, you can take your hands off the wheel and sit back and. But you're in the driver's seat. But basically. you're in the driver's seat. And you have to be ready to take back control at right. any point where... See, that it... slightly worries me. Well, the thing that's interesting, so they have cameras. Mm. So as soon as you look away, right. about this length of time that I haven't looked at you, it'll start beeping at you and say, right. sorry, put your eyes on the road. Okay. But what you do and very quickly start doing is this sort of vacant stare, yeah. which is that I'm not really paying any attention right. whatsoever, but I'm sort of looking at you, right. but... And then the car doesn't b- believes that you are believes you're still engaged. And the thing that I it doesn't change lane, although the there is the capability for it to do it, but we haven't approved right. that yet. And is it speech activated? I mean, can you speak to it? No, or? you can't speak to right. it. But okay. what what the thing that I found was interesting was that I was going along and I had uh, someone from Ford with me. I had someone in the back, and we were in the inside lane. And then I was approaching a slip road of cars coming onto the road yes. and if you were driving and paying attention your obvious thing you would do is move into the yes. middle lane to allow the right. traffic to flow on was I'd sort of just forgotten I was about to swear then I'd forgotten and went oh god right. and sort of sla- then hit the brake right. indicated and moved over but I just was because I was in this mm. sort of day yeah. of sitting there but why wouldn't that car automatically move then well it can and we haven't <clears throat> we haven't approved that element oh, I of see. it yeah okay. so it would be able so all to, it can do at the moment is, is and is it licensed to do that i mean if you bought one of these cars tomorrow can you then do what you did you can do exactly what i could d- did right. it won't change lanes but you could put it you could be so that could, person and put it in the middle you lane could put it in the middle lane hog the middle lane which we're all told not to do yeah you could sit you could very feasibly put it in the middle lane on a motorway anywhere in england uh-huh. uh, wales or scotland 
press go and it'll drive you. How would it go in, say, traffic if you drove it It in slows London? down. It, oh, so, it, you, so you, can't, you, you can't use it. It's only on the motorway network at the oh, moment. Oh, is it? But if the motorway slows... If it goes down to a crawl... It'll do that It'll do you. all that. Yeah. Because I was driving a car, funny enough, the other, uh, the other month where um, it had the cruise control sector section of it, which actually automatically slowed down yeah, if that's... a car pulled in front of you. Um, even if it was, you know, quite, yes. quite a long way away, and then you pull out around that and car it and it speed, speeds up again, and that's basically what this does. That's the adaptive but you're still cruise steering control. It. Yeah. Whereas in this, you, if you're in the same lane, right. you don't need to okay. steer at all. But this is still very elementary version of where right. we're going. Yes. In terms of what they expect to be coming. Mm down the road because i mean the big question about driverless cars is is more kind of philosophical isn't it it's like who's in charge of it who's responsible for it if you were to crash into one of those cars merging onto the motorway would it be your fault would it be ford mustang's fault you know how do you insure against that and similarly um if it's sort of having to make a decision which is what i've, I've read about as well in terms of if you are approaching a scene where there might be a crash do you go left and knock over the dog or do you go right and knock over the child do you go straight on and smash into the car in front of you? I know these are only very dark questions, well, but they're all questions that people want to know the answers it to. Was, it was very interesting. Jesse Norman, who is the uh, transport minister, was at the select committee yesterday, and he said that um, there, the UK will need to weather a moral panic yes. when self-driving vehicles are legalised. Now, the, where he's coming from with that is that actually the very, very vast majority of road accidents are caused by some factor of human error. Yeah. So if we said tomorrow we are going to have all driverless cars now, if we were convinced that the technology was there and it's no longer your responsibility, it'll be all vehicles mm. are driverless and you will get in you press a button you tell it where to go and that's that that's fine but as soon as you've got other road users still and that adoption that level of how many people are in self-driving car i mean i i was the schoolboy in me was enjoying driving past people sitting there with my arms completely folded and thinking but but it's a bit of a novelty isn't it i mean that would probably wear off after a while well of course it would and and also as as it as we see more of these vehicles coming on the road people get used to them the issue though is exactly what you've just said when people start crashing into Mm. them when they you know, there will be errors as well. Right. There will be technology well, I mean, failings. Other questions that I've been asked about this in the past have been, what about hackers? You know, what if somebody hacks into your car well, and that you suddenly was... find yourself driving at 130 miles an hour straight for a shop or something? The, uh, the insurance industry are very concerned yeah. about that because if we had a large volume of cars which were then hacked in some orchestrated mm. attack, how on earth would the motor industry there's yeah. obviously reinsurance and you, you know everything's doubly insured right. it's not but how could any company deal with something like that and that is something mm. that the motor industry are acutely aware of and the insurance industry are, are grappling with and that's i think where we are with this it's that it's there's lots of people doing a lot of research mm. a lot of work about it there's each step is a massive increment in terms of yes you can allow ford to turn on the technology but there's also 15 other things that need to be considered at that point now we've already got cars that can park themselves haven't we we Um, do yes i still can't work that one out i I find that almost impossible for my brain to compute that you could just park a car sort of next to another car and it suddenly just parks itself i I like to think of myself as a relatively good driver but i will confess that i am 
useless. I'm actually pretty good at, at parking. parallel parking. Yeah, no, I'm pretty good at it. Um, Although, if you don't get it right the first time, you're there for ages. You know, if you don't, if you actually get the angle slightly yes. wrong, you're kind of going backwards and forwards like an idiot. Um, but no, I'm, I'm generally speaking not bad at it. But Mark Harper has also said, uh, the Transport Secretary, that there's no public confidence yet for this sort of, you know, automatico car. He he was referring more to public confidence in smart motorways and set, and what they're trying to do is avoid... What Their desperate thing is to not have a repeat of the smart motorways fiasco, yes. which is that on paper you look at the statistics and smart motorways are technically, as I say, on paper mm. safe. But the reality is that when you hear the stories of how people come to die, they're pretty catastrophic. Yes. It's not a nice... There's no... How can I put... When you're reading stories about people being crashed into yeah. by HGVs because yeah. they were stopped and if there was mm. a hard shoulder, they'd be alive. Right. The government finally identified that the problem with smart motorways is that everyone's totally lost confidence yes. in them and doesn't want to and touch just, them. just doesn't want them. And yeah. that's what they're grappling with is that we don't get into a situation where... With driverless cars, the technology comes along. There's a, there's a desire within industry. There's a desire potentially even within the insurance industry because of how much human mm. error is involved in crashes. But the public go, no, thank you. I don't want it. And the other thing is, don't forget, there will be a large number of people listening to this who do actually enjoy driving. You're yeah. one of them. I'm well, one I, of yeah. them. I actually enjoy the activity of yes. driving. Of course, there's times when you're driving, it would be useful to be able to look at your, you know, actually look at your phone right. and so on. But actually, it's one of the few times where I only very recently got a car that had hands free. Yeah. And We've lost it on planes. They've all now got Wi-Fi. Yeah. It's one of the few times where actually, if you go on a long drive, you sit down. You don't actually talk to anyone. You yeah. don't need to talk to anyone. You can listen to the radio you're completely on your own, and you're outside of that constant interaction yes. with information. Hubble. The information is what's going on in front of yes, you, the road. Exactly. It's a very good point. Well, interesting stuff. Fascinating. Uh, we haven't even got time to mention the new uh, rail strikes, but it doesn't matter. They'll come up uh, another, time, <laughs> another time, I'm sure. Ben, good to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Ben Clapworthy there. Coming up, uh, we're going to talk about the water business in this country, why it's not working, why there isn't enough of it, why sometimes there's too much of it, and it's all very, very dirty. We need to clean it up. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 